0: Good morning, Gateway. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I am Dean Salami. I have the pleasure of bringing the message for you this morning. Thank you, thank you. I love movies. You guys love movies? Have you ever seen the movie King Arthur with Clive Owen and Kieran Knightley? Okay, there's a character in that movie, Tristan. Tristan's a great marksman. He's pretty deadly with a bow. And so in one of the scenes, the characters are having drinks and socializing for fun and they decide that they're gonna start practice throwing knives and and hitting a target. One of the guys hits the target dead on, but Tristan manages to hit the handle of that knife. And his friends ask him, Tristan, how is it that you do that? And he points to it and says, I just look at the middle. Sounds cool, doesn't it? But instinctively, we know that it's gotta be more than that. Because to be that deadly and that accurate takes practice, and lots of it, and so does a holy life. Now, I know Ed wrapped up his series of discussions on holiness a couple of weeks ago. There was something he said during those discussions that stuck in my mind. Holiness, he said, is something we grow in through discipline and effort. In other words, holiness doesn't just happen. And as God's people, we know holiness is actually a joint venture, right? God has his part and we have ours. God is faithful, so he will always do his part. But what does it look like for us? What does it take for me to hold up my end? Last week, John and Melella helped us out by showing us what a model of holiness doesn't look like. He talked about Samson. Now, I hope to show you the flip side of that today and show you what it does look like. So if you will, allow me to start us off by listening in on a conversation with Paul and his young disciple, Timothy. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I just want to pull some principles from there, and then we're going to spend our remaining of our time together looking at another Old Testament character. So before that, let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time. I pray, Lord God, that we would never forget how precious this is for us. It is a gift, and I pray, Lord God, that we never take it for granted. There are those around the world who suffer and cannot have such a time as this. We pray, Father, that the Songs of praise that we have lifted up to you are pleasing. And so for right now, Lord God, we ask that you would open up your word. I know you have a word for your people, and I pray, Father, that you would keep me out of the way. So I ask that you empower your servant, even now, so that I might glorify your name and bless your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. We're going to look at verses 20 to 21. Paul the evangelist is writing to Timothy and giving him instruction on how to deal with false teachers. The conversation actually begins in verse 14, but I want us to just focus in on these two verses. Paul encourages Timothy to maintain a singular standard when it comes to teaching, and that's the truth. He gives him an understanding as to how to differentiate himself from those false teachers. So let's read. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay some are for special purposes and some for common use those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes made holy useful to the master and prepared to do any good work may it please the lord to add his blessing to his word amen now there are three qualities i believe paul brings out in these verses that are worthy of our attention notice first the distinction he makes between special purposes and common use In some translations, it's honorable versus dishonorable. But in this context, the distinction is contrastive. Paul wants Timothy to teach in contrast to the false teachers. In other words, he wants Timothy to be distinctive. Jesus was like this. When he taught, the people were often amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. Our holiness makes us distinctive, not like everyone else. This is very important for us to remember, especially as it relates to us engaging the culture. Anytime we begin to sing the same song as a culture, there's a high probability that we are not being distinctive. Now, notice the next quality in the same section. Those who cleanse themselves. That's an active thing. In order for you to be able to cleanse, or the King James uses a stronger word, purge, there must be a determination to do that. You cannot be distinctive without making a choice to do so. If you remember the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends resolved in their minds and they not to eat the king's food. They chose not to eat and were determined to not defile themselves. God blessed their choice, and after a period of time, they looked healthier than those who did eat the king's food. So again, in order for us to be distinctive, we must make a choice to do so. In other words, we must be determined. Lastly, we must be discerning. Why? Because we were used for special purposes, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Everything I just listed in that, God defines and God decides. And if we're not on the same page, there can be confusion. Paul wanted this ailment he was suffering from to be removed from him, and he prayed for it about three times. God's answer was no, and all he said was, My grace is sufficient. Now, he learned two things in this. First, God was shown strong in his weakness. But secondly, and I think more importantly, he realized that the ailment was designed to keep him humble. That takes discernment. So whenever we feel dissonance or frustration for something we want and it doesn't feel like God is hearing us, it usually means God is up to something. And if we're patient, we will learn what he is up to. But it takes discernment because discernment dispels confusion. Now, if you're tracking with me, say amen. Okay, so we got three things that we're trying to keep an eye on, right? Distinctiveness, right? Determination, and discerning, okay? Now, these three principles that act as instructions for Paul to Timothy. But what happens when instruction and the experiences of life clash? What does holiness look like when experience seems a push-up against instruction? Now, let's turn to the Old Testament character that I was mentioning earlier. Because this person, I believe, models how we answer this question. I'm referring to the prince of Egypt. Now, if you know the movie, you might be thinking I'm referring to Moses. But in actuality, I'm referring to the one that Moses wrote about, Joseph. See, Moses was introduced to the Egyptian high court as an infant when he wooed Pharaoh's daughter because he was such a beautiful baby. But Joseph, on the other hand, was introduced to the Egyptian high court as an inmate. And he wowed Pharaoh with the wisdom to secure that position. Now, if you will indulge me, I'm going to start us looking at the tail end of um, Joseph's story. And then I'm going to ask a question. Genesis 45, 4 through 8, if you have it, please turn there. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all of Egypt. Now here's my question. How did Joseph get here? How did he come to this understanding? Now, in order for you to fully appreciate the question, you need to understand a little bit of Joseph's family history. Now, I'm gonna cover a lot of ground, but I'm gonna be very selective in what I say to you, okay? Now Joseph, you remember Joseph's dad? His, His name was Jacob. And Jacob was the last of the tree of Israel's founding fathers. You know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Jacob was a swindler. Now he always fancied himself a fairly clever man but that was up until he found himself swindled by his uncle Laban. He was tricked into marrying two sisters, Leah and Rachel. In Genesis 29:17 we read this description of them. Leah had weak eyes but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Modern day translation, Rachel was hot, Leah was not. Okay? <laughs> now, imagine Two sisters vying for the same man's attention. Their rivalry was bitter, and it would infect the entire family. And before long, Jacob the swindler would look like a man who was ruled by his house instead of ruling his house. Now, I really need to give you a glimpse into that rivalry because you won't really understand it unless you see this little piece here. And it's interesting. Pay attention to Leah, though. Rachel was Jacob's favorite. He loved her but God had a different plan. He blessed Leah, and she had four sons in quick order, but she was the one that named them. But listen to the names that she's given them. Reuben, her first, means the Lord has seen my misery. After he was born, she thought, surely my husband will love me now. Simeon was next. His name means the Lord heard that I am not loved, and after he was born, she thought he was given as a gift. Levi was next, and after he was born, she said, now my husband and I will be close since I've given him three sons. And then there was Judah, number four. After he was born, Leah just said, I'll just praise the Lord. Well, not to be undone, Rachel wanted to jump into the action, but when the dust settled, Jacob wound up with four wives and 11 kids, and none of them were Rachels. But then God remembered Rachel, and then Joseph was born. Now, hopefully you better understand this rivalry and the dysfunction. Because given the dysfunction in the family, I want to know, how did Joseph come to the understanding he did in chapter 45? The dysfunction goes deeper still, though. But for the sake of time, let me skip ahead into the story. I'm going to pick us up now in Genesis 37. Jacob lived in a land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Joseph was born 17 years ago, according to this. And we don't know anything about him specifically. But in that time period, we do learn a lot about his family. But what we read here at first blush does not seem positive. In fact, many commentators and preachers take verse 2 and then later verse 3 together and immediately label Joseph a spoiled brat and a tattletale. But what we have to do is ask ourselves, is that what the Bible is actually saying of him? More on that later. Now, verse 3 and 4. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him, More than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, notice Jacob's favoritism to Joseph. We are given the explanation for why, but that's really not an excuse. Moses is simply giving us the facts here. But pay attention, if you will, to the reason his brother's hostility toward him. It was not because he was a tattletale. It was jealousy. Their father set his love and attention on Joseph and not on them. This was a flaw in Jacob, not Joseph. He did the same thing to Leah and we see how it affected her. Her sons were named according to the pain she felt at the way Jacob treated her. It's no small wonder then that Joseph's brothers would exhibit such jealous hatred toward him. Now, I know a little bit about this. My sister had the same kind of jealousy for my brother and I. See, I'm Nigerian and when I was born there, my dad sent us here. He called myself and my mom here. And for the next 10 years, I did not see my sister, okay? But in that time, my little brother was born. But when my mom was finally able to bring her here, she did not hide the resentment that she had toward us for not being raised with our parents. Now keep in mind, I had nothing to do with this, and my brother had even less because he wasn't born. But that fact did not temper her animosity. So when we read this verse, let's keep in mind that fact. Is this a commentary on the character of Joseph or that of his brothers? We do have to wonder, though, if this level of favoritism actually got to Joseph's head. It takes an extreme amount of animosity not to be able to speak kindly to a sibling, and we don't have any record of him doing anything wrong. A hatred like this has actually been proven for well over 20 years, but it gets worse. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually reign, rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and with, when what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, and I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground to you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, you would think that Joseph would have known better than to share his dream with his brothers, given their animosity for him. But have you ever had a dream that was either so scary or so confusing that you couldn't help but share it? My wife, Althea, she used to have these dreams. And she would have them, and once she woke up, it's almost immediately. I had the weirdest dream. And she just starts describing it. It was almost as if she couldn't really help herself. She used to ask me what I thought the dreams meant. And then when she kept hearing, she stopped. (laughs) Now, his brothers took this as arrogance and hated him all the more. When he shared it with his dad, his dad rebuked him, but Jacob kept it in mind. Because Jacob himself, he knew a few things about dreams. Now, so far, based off of what we read, it does not appear that Joseph was being arrogant. He was simply recounting the dreams. Dreams, we as the readers know, is going to come true. This is what is known as dramatic irony. The irony is that Joseph is going to be ill-treated for something that's going to come true, and he will be the one to help those that hate him. The hint of Christ in this story is unmistakable. But let's continue. In verse 12 through 14, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and to see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent them off from the valley of Hebron. Now, as Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers, this isn't a very important piece of information. Because, and this is going to actually help us get a little bit more clarity on this chapter, Shechem was where Jacob's only daughter was raped. And in revenge, Simeon and Levi killed all the males of the city. They took the women and children captive and plundered the city. When Jacob heard about this, he was extremely upset because he was afraid of retribution. But the Bible tells us that the only reason there wasn't retribution was because of the supernatural protection of God, and it kept him safe. Jacob, though, was very, very mindful of watching these boys. He wanted to make sure that they didn't get into any trouble that would endanger the family again. But it seems that Joseph was the one he trusted to give him an honest report. With that bit of information, though, if we go back to verse 2 and read that, does that change our perception of Joseph? tattletale or trusted son? I'll let you decide. I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. I'm gonna read now in verse 18 through 25. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. Throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood, throw him into the cistern here, in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat the meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and uh, myrrh, and they were on their way to, to Egypt. Okay, so... His brothers see him coming. They plot to kill him and they, because they recognize his coat. Here comes that dreamer. Instead of killing him, though, they decide to sell him as a slave and try and make money. They grab Joseph, take his coat, throw him in a well, and then they sit down to eat. And when a caravan of merchants come, they sell him, and off Joseph goes into Egypt. Now, this is a part of Joseph's background. But we are not given direct clues about Joseph's character himself. We are giving a lot of clues about his family, though. His character, though, is actually being contrasted with that of his family, if you notice. His dad was doting but paid favorites. His brothers were given to their emotions. They hated Joseph because of jealousy. Could you imagine this animosity that Joseph must have been feeling on a day-to-day basis? Now, this is from his own family. It's one thing if we live in a culture like we do today and we experience that kind of animosity, but this is his own family. And there's nothing that the Bible tells us that he actually did wrong. Now, the issue we see here is not Joseph being a spoiled brat or arrogant. Dysfunction permeates his family. And yet Joseph stands out. He seems different. Now, keep in mind, this is a passive distinctiveness. Joseph didn't work to get the affection from his father, nor did he ask for the hatred from his brothers. He most certainly didn't ask for the dreams either. All of these things were out of his control but our discussion is about how Joseph models an active distinctiveness because that's what we need help with. You and I can't help being born into the circumstances we were born into, nor do we necessarily have control of the circumstances we find ourselves in. But does that mean we have to be like Jacob and be a victim of our circumstances? Let's take a look at the next chapter in Joseph's life and see what answers we get from there, okay? If you're tracking with me, turn to chapter 39 of Genesis. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was, was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him and from the Ishmaelites who, who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household. He entrusted to him his care of everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and also in the field. So Potiphar left everything that he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph finds himself in Egypt, He's a slave to Potiphar. He's in a strange land and probably needed to uh, learn a new language. By all rights, Joseph should be complaining, angry, and even bitter. He could have tried to escape and find his way back home, but that's not what we read about him. It seems Joseph accepted his circumstances, and he made a conscious decision to work, and he did good work at that. The Lord was with Joseph and blessed his work. The blessing was God's part, and the work was Joseph. It was so evident that Potter noticed and continued to give Joseph more and more responsibility until he was in charge over everything he owned. We can never underestimate the favor that the Lord grants us in the sight of others. But we still have work to do. It's that joint venture I spoke to you about earlier. But now with Jacob, in contrast, we see almost a resignation in his circumstances. If Leah wanted to manipulate him so she can get what she want, he allowed it. If Rachel wanted him to marry her handmaid to produce kids she couldn't, he allowed it. But Joseph was not like that. He determined to make the best of his situation and became actively engaged toward that end. Of all the slaves that Potiphar owned, Joseph stood out. He was distinctive in his work because he chose to do so. Now, please notice how these two principles, being distinctive and being determined, They work in tandem. You can't pull those two apart, okay? Are you following me so far? If you're awake, say amen. Amen. Okay, you're awake. Thank you. All right. Joseph was not only distinctive when it came to his work. Notice what we read in the next verses. Okay, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now, you guys know, if Ed was preaching this, and he said well-built and handsome, Joseph looked kind of like me, right? (laughs) And then as you laugh, he'd say, why are you laughing? It's not that funny. It's not that funny, right? and sin against God. Apparently, he took after, Joseph did, took after his mom in the looks category. And Mrs. Potiphar noticed. But she wanted to sleep with him. Okay? Last week, John talked about Samson. In two separate occasions, John mentions how women wore Samson down. And you know the reason for that, right? Samson made no determination to avoid them, he flirted with the temptation and ultimately fell victim to it but not our man, Joseph. He refused. He lived to a higher standard. Did you hear what he said in the verses eight through 10? He said it, he was being honorable. He even mentioned God, but apparently that just made her want him more. She didn't even hear him. But Joseph's determination was stronger. Even though she was pressing him every day, he just would not relent. He was that determined. Now this woman just simply would not take no for an answer. Joseph goes into the house one day, conveniently, and he's trying to attend to his duties, but somehow no one else is there. It's just he and her. And she steps up the aggression game. She grabs Joseph and just tries to force him to sleep with her. He did the only thing he could. He ran for the hills. Now, as you can imagine, Joseph maintains his integrity, but it costs him. It costs him big time. When Potiphar returns, his wife is ready with her version of the story. And for his troubles... Joseph gets thrown in jail. Now, Joseph going to jail could be seen as a bad thing if it were not for the fact that we start to see a pattern for Joseph. When he gets to the prison, we see the same sequence of events unfold for him as it did when he first came to Egypt under Potiphar. Joseph goes to work, the Lord blesses him, and before long, Joseph is running the entire prison. Now, I wonder if Joseph understood something that Paul was trying to tell the Colossians in in verse 23 of chapter 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Now, what we learn about Joseph is the type of character this young man had. He was trustworthy. His dad, Potiphar, and the head jailer came to trust him implicitly. God had his eye on him and blessed him. He was a good administrator. He knew how to handle and deal with people. And in jail, he also learned how to interpret dreams. Many of these characteristics and skills were made evident by the circumstances he had to endure. In other words, Joseph came to Egypt like this. Egypt didn't put this into Joseph. Egypt and all he endured provided the platform for these traits to shine. In the same way, God uses circumstances in our lives to hone and refine us so that our holiness is given a platform from which to shine. And as we shine, we become fit to be used by Him for special purposes. And any work he deems good. Now, have you ever thought of trials and the things that you go through in life as means to work in and out of you certain character traits? Paul and James both agree that we should be happy when we run into these circumstances because of that very fact. When we're going through struggles, we tend to ask the question, why me? Why do I go through this? Just remember, a life of ease and comfort is not the goal. God is actively conforming us to the image of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognizing this changes the question. What should I learn from these circumstances? Knowing that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. But notice, Paul did not say that all things are good. He says that all things, both good and bad, work together for our good. Now, so far what we see from Joseph is that he's a real deal. let's go ahead and start to wrap up because hopefully we've built enough of a framework to begin to answer the question I asked that I pose about Joseph. Now, we don't know how much time that Joseph spends in jail. While there, though, he meets the chief cupbearer and the chief breaker. They were put in jail because Pharaoh was angry with him, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph. One night, they each had a dream, and the next morning, Joseph noticed they looked sad, and he asked them what was wrong. They were troubled, because they wanted to make sense of the dream, but they did not have anyone to help to interpret it. So Joseph encouraged them to tell him the dream. The cupbearer shares his dream with Joseph, and Joseph provides a positive interpretation. He will be restored to his position in three days. All Joseph asks is that the cupbearer remember him and mention his situation to Pharaoh. Now, seeing a positive result, the baker shares his dream. Not so positive for him, though. Could you imagine how awkward that was? Sorry, dude, you're going to be killed in three days. Have a nice day. (laughs) But just as Joseph said, the cupbearer was restored and the baker was killed. And for his troubles, Joseph had to remain in jail for two more years. But Pharaoh started to have dreams. None of the magicians and wise men of Egypt could interpret the dreams because God had his man trained and prepared For this special purpose, no one but Joseph was going to do. Now, when the cupbearer heard about the dreams, he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. And when they bring Joseph before Pharaoh, Pharaoh says to him, I hear you're able to interpret dreams. Joseph wisely acknowledges his true strength. I can't, but God knows how to, and he'll give you the answer that you're looking for. So Pharaoh shares the dream with him. And in a blink of an eye, Joseph goes from being an inmate to the second in command in Egypt. And guess what we see? The same ultimate end that we saw before with Potiphar and the head jailer. Pharaoh turns everything over to Joseph. Hear what Pharaoh says to Joseph. I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Now, of course, we're going to have to ask the question, why did Joseph have to stay in jail for two more years? The answer... Quite simple. God's timing. Now, we don't like that answer very much. But God doesn't ask our opinion about this. Remember what Paul said to Timothy? Our job is to be prepared so God can use us when he decides and when he wants. It wasn't not time for Joseph to come out of the jail when he actually interpreted that dream for the cup era. There was a crisis coming down the road. And Joseph was the only one best prepared to deal with it. He was left in prison until he was needed. Now, by the time he stood in front of Pharaoh, 13 years had passed since from the time his brother sold him until that point. Every circumstance that occurred in his life was proving ground. Each one was an opportunity to see what Joseph was made of by the way he handled himself. He was clearly distinctive in every aspect of his life, but he was only distinctive because he was determined to do so. Now, let's end where we began. I asked the question, how did Joseph get there? Now, you might think that Joseph becoming second in command of Egypt was his great triumph. Or maybe when his brothers came and he, they bowed before him, vindicating the dream that he had. But it wasn't that. Joseph's great triumph was when he realized what his life was really about. In other words, his discernment kicked in. He was able to put his entire life in proper perspective. He was used by God for a special purpose. And now he saw it. I cannot underscore how critical this principle is, especially for us. It would have been very easy for Joseph to take each circumstance in his life and see them as random events. He could have been embittered by them and not appreciative of anything that he had learned. But what he did learn was to tie them all together and realize that they were for a special purpose. Now by the time he realized this, keep in mind that it was 22 years that had passed. Because I don't want us to leave here with the false impression that we're determined and we're distinctive that we're gonna get that discernment right away. That can take many years in the coming. But how many of us want to sign up for something like that? Guess what? Got news for you. When we accepted Christ, we all did. Right? Now, again I want to ask the question how did Joseph get here? He was determined. His determination made him distinctive. He was also discerning. He was able to look back on his life and put it all into perspective. He lived out these three principles. Now, here's our takeaway. Joseph was used for a very special purpose by God, but it required him to blaze his trail almost virtually alone because none of his family was able to live up to the task. He proves us one thing, though. When experience and instruction clash, follow instructions. Amen? Are you sure about that? Okay. When experiencing instruction clash, we need to follow instructions because our circumstances don't define us, but they do show who we are, for the good as well as for the bad. A life of holiness is a life lived in preparation to be used by God, and Joseph gives us a great model for that. Now, it will help us through the tough times individually as well as corporately. When we, as Gateway, since we're going into a new building, when we are struggling to meet our mortgage payments and Gateway Village is not as successful as as we hoped and we start getting worried, someone is going to have to remind us that God is not limited to Gateway Village. Right? But the only way someone can remind us of that is to have lived it themselves and give true testimony of, of God's provision. What happens when we're in our pretty new building and someone throws rocks through the window? who will remind us that we are here for those people who threw those rocks and that Jesus died for them. See, those circumstances will not define us, but they will show who we are. So let's determine right now that we will be distinctive no matter what happens, and we will be determined to do so. Amen? Maybe years from now, as a church, we'll be used by God for special purposes along the way and we'll have that same wisdom that joseph had let me close this in prayer father god we thank you so much for this time thank you for your word and thank you for the model that joseph brings us i pray father god that you would hear our hearts cry The songs that we sung today we have made a decision to follow i've decided to follow jesus but we admit lord god that sometimes when we are out and about and in our everyday lives we are so distracted but what we learned from Joseph is that he was not. He was determined. His determination made him distinctive. And after years of serving you, he learned and gained a lot of discernment. I pray that you would help us to do the same. There's much that you called us to do. And I pray, Father God, that we will set aside time, like Ed encourages, with discipline and effort to be able to prepare ourselves to be used by you. We acknowledge, Lord God, that you are God and we are not. And though while we might cry and scream that we want, we want, we want, we know that the way is to just wait on you and see what you want. Direct us now, I pray. In the matchless name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.